Hi, everyone. My name is Shirley Brady, and welcome to the RGA podcast, where we explore fresh thinking and new ideas around technology, creativity, strategy, and how all of that can help us create a more human future. Today, I'll be talking with Peter Smith, our Senior Vice President and Global Head of Data here at RGA, and Josh DeGear, Senior Strategist at RGA Ventures. We'll be chatting about data responsibility, innovation, and how companies can make better use of data that's ethical and creates a better customer experience. So thank you both for joining me. Peter, I thought we'd start with you. We've recorded a podcast together fairly recently, but for people who might have missed that or would love to know more about what the global head of data does at RGA, could you talk a little bit about what you do and what your role exactly is at the company? Sure, of course. And thanks again for having me on, Shirley. So at RGA and within our data practice here, we really help our clients, generally speaking, understand their businesses, their consumers, and the world better. Most of the time when we're working with our clients, you know, one of the common problems that they face is really just trying to wrap their arms around the variety and the complexity of the data that they have in front of them. So a lot of our work is focused on, you know, frankly, just like making sense of, of a sea of data that they have at their fingertips. But beyond that, we really strive to use that data to, as you mentioned in your intro, create a more human future for not only our, our clients and their employees, but also their customers, obviously, as well. And Josh, tell us a little bit about what RG Ventures is, and then more specifically, what is the Data Venture Studio? Sure. So RGA Ventures works with our clients and corporate partners to identify innovation that's happening in the startup ecosystem. And now that could be innovation in technology, that could be innovation in looking at new consumer behaviors, or even looking at at new business models. And the RGA Data Venture Studio was spun up at the end of last year and really was spurred on by a lot of the changes that we were seeing in the regulatory landscape with things like CCPA and GDPR, but also a lot of the platform changes that are happening now as well with sort of the deprecation of third-party cookies online, big changes happening to mobile advertising IDs, and just generally, I think, more consumer awareness around uh, data and ethical data use and consumer privacy, I think those things are are in the forefront in a way that they weren't even just a couple of years ago. And so we created the Data Venture Studio to look at those changing trends and look for opportunities in this in this quickly changing landscape and take our partners and clients along for the ride with us. So let's continue on that theme of opportunities and especially how times of turmoil can also create opportunities. As we think back to how Uber, WhatsApp, Venmo, et cetera, et cetera, were born out of the 2008 global financial crisis and drove mobile-first consumers and innovation, what is the playbook for startup success now where we've seen the rise of TikTok, for example, not only survive but thrive in this tumultuous year? Josh, I think this would be a good question for you. Definitely a lot of the companies that we're looking at for the Data Venture Studio sort of revolve around this idea of the changing paradigm on on data where before it was really one-sided where a brand or an agency had the, the mindset of let's go and capture as much data as we can and we'll ask questions on on how to use it and where it should go after we have it. And you sort of see the results of that now with really siloed data teams and data across an organization that doesn't speak to each other or teams that don't speak to each other. And so I think a, a winning strategy for 
data today in the 2020s, especially for emerging companies that, that want to take advantage of these changes, it's really centered around how do you enable trust and transparency, both externally with your consumers and people who are giving you their personal data, but also internally too, how do you make teams and departments aware of the data that the company has access to? And I think uh, the companies that are facilitating that kind of transparency and that kind of collaboration and ultimately thinking about the value exchange in a more holistic way are the ones that will succeed going forward. I also think because we have so much access to data and specifically around people's preferences for things with gigabytes and, and petabytes and terabytes of data from social activity, you're starting to see things like TikTok, for example, where without any um, sort of user input, they're able to curate a feed that's perfectly suited to your interests and what you want to see. And I, I think it's it's no coincidence that in sort of the transition to making TikTok a U.S. entity, the one thing that the company is unwilling to give up is that curation algorithm. I think that speaks volumes to, to how important that is. And so I think going forward, this idea of sort of next level curation or recommendation systems will also be huge over the coming years. Peter, I'd love to get your thoughts too. So of course, AI first is the order of the day. But when you think about this topic of new opportunities, what does that bring to your mind? I guess maybe to, to answer the question a little bit more broadly, I think, you know, creating a successful startup or a successful company, it's about several factors, but it's always about kind of identifying a tension or a problem statement first that's timely and, and relevant to, you know, a broad population or addressable market. But identifying that tension first is definitely a key to ensuring market fit. Beyond that, I think, as you mentioned, like being AI first, I think is really kind of the defining characteristic of successful startups in this era. During our last podcast, we talked about how digital transformation was kind of like the buzzword or mission kind of statement that was kind of embodied by a lot of the successful startups of the last 15 years. Uh, mobile first, I think, being one component of that, but really being AI first and architecting your business from the ground up to use AI in an efficient and performant way, while also maintaining kind of like transparency and trust with your consumer base. That, that's going to be critical to any kind of startups overall architecture, I would say, business architecture or technical architecture as we move into the coming decade. So the data space is consolidating and changing rapidly. Even before COVID-19, more than half of the data generated on the internet flowed to only 100 companies each day. And then you think about implications of when Google's Chrome announces it's removing third-party cookies. While this is great for consumer privacy, it makes first-party data even more valuable. How do companies that aren't in this list of top 100 data acquirers compete and win in this landscape? Peter, let's start with you, and then I'd love to get your take, Josh. Sure. It's, it's a really good question. I think a challenge a lot of non-digital native, very large companies are facing, frankly. You kind of saw this problem beginning to emerge in the early 2000s with big e-commerce marketplaces, namely Amazon, right? And kind of the question that arose from that was like, who really owns the relationship with the consumer, right? Is it Amazon or is it the actual you know, vendor that's selling their wares or goods on Amazon's site? And I think what a lot of companies have, have kind of seen and come to realize is that like by selling through Amazon, they're kind of enabling Amazon to continue to own that consumer relationship. The implication of that being obviously that the companies and brands that are selling through Amazon are not capturing the same amount of data and the same quality of data that they would if they were doing direct to consumer via their own e-commerce sites. So I guess like, you know, the question becomes, okay, well, how do we kind of combat that given that, you know, Amazon is a, a massive kind of, you know, distribution channel for us. We don't want to give it up, but we also recognize that like we're losing ground in terms of our understanding of the consumer, of our consumers. 
I think, you know, there are some companies that are doing some pretty interesting things uh, out there today. I think Nike is probably the one that's made the most headlines as of late and kind of shutting down wholesale accounts. You know, Amazon can be thought of as kind of a wholesale distribution channel, um, although it's not in the traditional kind of brick and mortar sense. But they're shutting down wholesale accounts because they really want to own the overall end to end consumer experience. Right. So while you might be turning away potentially some business via those distribution channels, ultimately, you'll know your consumer better and you'll be able to deliver better experiences to your consumer in the future because of the information and understanding you have of them. I think another way that companies are trying to combat this are through data joint ventures is, is one way to put it. But if you think about like a company, for example, that works in like the baby clothing space, right? They sell you know kids clothes. The consumer that they're catering to, their audience for that is typically a mom, right? And they often refer to their customer persona as a mom. If you think about other spaces like theirs that are not directly competitive, like, you know, say, athleisure wear, right, they might be referring to their consumer as a mom as well. Now, those two businesses are not necessarily directly competitive, but they do share the same consumer. So how can you work with other businesses that share consumer audiences with you to capture more data and use that data in a way that that creates better experiences for your customers in the end? I think that's another kind of creative way that, that businesses are beginning to look outside their four walls to to get better data and, and compete with those top 100 brands that you mentioned. Yeah, I've, I've definitely seen a lot of that through the Data Venture Studio too. One of the things that's been really interesting to us are these sort of data collaborations or, or as you put it, joint data ventures. There was a really interesting one that happened between Disney and Target recently they had this great insight that they had a a 70% overlap in customers and that they should do something about that. And so they entered into an agreement where Disney and Target were sharing data with each other so that Disney as an advertiser could go and Mm -hmm. tell a CPG brand who was running spots on, on Disney properties and say, you know, after running this spot, we saw X lift in sales through the Target sales channel and really that that could only be accomplished by sharing those identities and, and linking them together between the two. And like you mentioned, it's, a, it's sort of a, a net benefit for both parties. I think for so long, there's been this conception that companies need to hoard data and data is, is proprietary and shouldn't be given up for free. But by just changing the perception to think about how data can enable partnerships and, and sort of shared value, I think it opens a, a world of, of possibilities that haven't been explored yet. Peter, anything you'd want to add to that point? No, I, I just think that Josh probably pulled a better example than I did with uh, with, with the Target Disney relationship. <laughs> There's so many to choose from. I mean, Hershey's is doing that with retailers. There's an agreement between MasterCard and Unilever to understand effectiveness of ads. It's definitely starting to happen more and more. Um, and something that we're seeing in the startup space too. I mean, recently there was a company, a, a London-based startup named Infosum, that on September 1st closed a a $15 million Series A. And as part of that, Brian Lesser, who's sort of a a legend in in the ad tech space, he was the uh, founder and and former CEO of AT&T's old ad tech business, and also the former CEO of the media agency Group M. He's joining the team now as, as executive chairman. And the whole concept behind this startup is that you can share data or or maybe more accurately collaborate on data without actually sharing it. They have this concept of data bunkers, which are essentially abstractions of the data that still allow you to share the data in aggregate without actually sharing the underlying personal information or or underlying data. And I think you'll start to see more and more companies that are, are looking to capitalize on this opportunity, even 
Snowflake, the data company, today they had their IPO and the value of the stock doubled in first trades. It was the largest ever software IPO. The market value right now is around $90 billion. And in their their S1 that they filed last month prior to to going public, I did a a control F search in the in the S1 and the phrase data sharing came up 26 times. So clearly super important to a lot of these these data company strategies going forward and in the section of their S1 where they talk about how they they plan to grow the business, they explicitly call out data sharing as a substantial and largely untapped opportunity and even had different charts showing how their clients today are using the platform to share data around COVID and how it's impacting their businesses. And I think it's really just the tip of the iceberg, but it was it was wild to see that phrase 26 times in, in their S1. Josh, I also want to ask you as a strategist, somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about the data space, as of course you both do, you've got the unique vantage point through RGA Ventures and specifically the Data Venture Studio of having a front seat at some of the most innovative ideas that are coming down the pike to address data-based pain points. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you're seeing firsthand with some of the startups you're working with? Definitely. I think, especially with the the partners that we've been working with in the Data Venture Studio, everyone has a, a lot of question marks right now around what the future is going to look like. I think both from a regulatory perspective, but also from a, a platform perspective too. Like we mentioned at the beginning, Chrome phasing out third-party cookies is really flipping the infrastructure of how advertising online has been handled since pretty much its its inception. This is really flipping it on its head. Similarly, Apple's recent announcement to pretty big changes with their ID for advertisers or the IDFA now requiring more explicit user consent to be able to use that identifier in, in advertisements. All to say there are a lot of platform changes and one of the ways we've been using the studio is to help our partners navigate these platform changes and think through what will be the solutions going forward that that won't be as impacted by these changes. I think even look at, at what's happening with the App Store right now and, and Apple and, and Epic, it seems like some of these long simmering tensions between the platforms and the gatekeepers are really starting to come to a head in 2020. And one of the things we've been looking at in the studio is, is how do you navigate that? How can you build architectures that are more decentralized and not as reliant on these sort of gatekeepers so that you don't have to worry about changes that they make sometimes on a whim that ultimately have huge impacts on the business. But I'm sure Peter has seen things too on the agency side where things that might not have a a direct tie to data campaign work and even things like media placement, I'm sure are, are affected by all of these changes happening. Yeah, I mean, I think like, you know, it's interesting, like your description of, of the landscape, Josh, because I think it, a lot of it comes back to a point we touched on earlier around these kind of data monopolies and how companies are, are kind of being forced to navigate that landscape and really like compete in a way where they don't have the same advantages of a lot of their you know non-traditional competition that might be out there. So I, I think like the examples you brought up around, you know, like Epic and Apple, for example, are just indicative of that broader trend that the data monopolies out there have outsized control. And I think there's like a little bit of a reckoning happening in, in the corporate world today where companies are trying to figure out new ways to kind of navigate around that and, and remain competitive without, you know, ceding their ownership of their data to those monopolies and those larger platforms. Absolutely. And I think one of the, the guiding lights there can be 
the regulation that's been happening with GDPR and CCPA, like I think so often, especially marketers and, and people who have to sort of consider the compliance aspect of these things, see them as barriers or challenges. But I think there's an opportunity to look at these things as, again, sort of a, a change in perspective and in our paradigm around data. And if we take into account the spirit of these laws around transparency and around trust, I think you can establish a value exchange around data with your users or your consumers that is a bit more future-proof and, and able to stand up to some of these changes that, that will be coming. That's actually really interesting because if you think about like like the Access Act, for example, around interoperability, portability, and delegatability, that's obviously a consumer-facing piece of legislation. But you know the same principles kind of apply to brands as well, right? So how can brands kind of continue to own their data and their relationship with their consumers in a way that that is not as I guess disintermediated by some of these more centralized or nodal platforms? Absolutely. And interoperability is one of the sort of concepts that's being thrown around in legislation right now that gets me really, really excited because anytime that you set standards, that's that's where innovation happens because you're able to, to facilitate this kind of collaboration. I mean, imagine if we didn't have, you know, one type of USB port, for example, and how much of a pain and frustration that would be. And I think we've kind of come to accept that in the data space today. You know, I, I can't take my data that I've posted or content that I've posted on Twitter and port that over to Facebook or Instagram, or I can't take the information that I've shared with Nike and port that over to Adidas, for example. And I think with some of the legislation that has interoperability as, as a real pillar, I think there's a lot of opportunity for innovation to happen there. So Josh, one of the functions of the Data Venture Studio is to track emerging technologies. And I'd love to get your thoughts. What are some of the most promising and game-changing technologies that you're seeing right now? There's definitely a, a lot out there right now. And I think if you look at some of the biggest and most successful startups in the data space right now, they're all around consent management, which I'll admit is maybe a category that's more focused on just complying with regulation, on making sure that you can deliver what you need to as sort of mandated by GDPR and CCPA. But it is a, a behemoth category right now. There's a company named OneTrust that was founded in 2016, and they raised a Series B this past February and were valued at $2.7 billion, so unicorn status. And I think out of all of the different categories of startups that we've been looking at in the Data Venture Studio, it definitely seems that consent management is where some of the, the fastest and biggest growth is, is happening. Now, areas that maybe are a bit more exciting, one of the, the areas that's really promising and that I find really exciting is differential privacy, which is essentially is a way to anonymize consumer data and to be able to use it in a way that is privacy safe. And it's a fairly new development, at least in terms of, of actual application. But it is real. I mean, the U.S. 2020 census is using differential privacy on, on some of the data that they're capturing. Essentially, what it is, is injecting noise or sort of randomness into the data set. And so you do lose out on some accuracy. You don't necessarily get accurate row level or entry level information for different data points. But when looking at the data in aggregate, you're still reaching the same conclusions in a way that's that's privacy safe. And so 
There's an example that I, I love of how this works that was in a book called The Ethical Algorithm that was actually co-authored by Michael Kearns, who was a speaker at, at one of our events for the Data Venture Studio. And they, they have this great example that uses the analogy of a coin toss. And so they frame it as sort of like an embarrassing question that maybe you wouldn't want to have your name attached to. And the concept is they flip the coin, and if it's heads, you give the true answer, and if it's tails you give a random answer that's generated by another coin flip. And so in that case, you can't necessarily tie any specific answer to one person. But when you're looking at those coin flips in aggregate, you do reach something that is close enough to the truth that it's still statistically significant and usable. I'm also really excited by GPT-3, which is a, a bit of a controversial topic. There was an op-ed posted in The Guardian last week that was written by GPT-3, and so the editors of The Guardian gave it a prompt and said, in 500 words, in plain language, explain to us why humans shouldn't fear AI. And it spit out an article that was pretty compelling. And in the editor's notes, they mention some more details that they gave it in terms of instructions and a bit of an intro. And they acknowledged that it actually spit out eight different essays that the editors then went and pulled from to pull together what would eventually become the op-ed. But it, it was funny, they had a note saying that it was easier to edit those eight essays than any contribution from a human that they've gotten. And so I, I posted that op-ed in the machine learning Slack channel at RGA, and the response was kind of divided. Like some people were really interested in the op-ed and, and found it super promising, and others thought that it was sort of everything wrong with media hype of AI, which I think in some ways is fair because at the end of the day, this algorithm is spitting out an essay that looks like it, it was written by some sort of entity with sentient thought or coherent thought. But at the end of the day, it's just really good at writing and not necessarily thinking. And to prove that there was an RGAer out of the data team in BA who has a GPT-3 license and gave it the same prompt, essentially, but instead of asking why should humans not fear AI, the prompt was, why should humans actually fear AI? And it spit out text that was equally compelling and convincing and, and well-written. And I think that just goes to show that at the end of the day, it's just a tool. It's not sort of the iRobot scenario that sometimes it's made out to be. But at the same time, it's an incredibly powerful tool. And if you think about use cases like propaganda, for example, and just churning out content pieces that can get past content filters because they're they're slightly different each time, you can think about some sort of reasons why maybe humans should fear GPT-3. But, you know, like all powerful tools, the morality of it is in the hands of the person or thing using it. GPT-3 is a particularly interesting topic and technology to dive into. And, and as you mentioned, you know, RGA had a GPT-3 bot running around on our Slack channel for, for a while before we, we had to rein it in a little bit. Um, I guess we're still working out the kinks on it. But, um, but I think GPT-3 as a specific technology has a lot of interesting use cases that could be, you know, very applicable to the work that we do on a daily basis. We're looking at a few different, I guess, proofs of concept that we would potentially deploy using GPT-3 that actually like kind of, you know, turn some of these questions around on ethics and morality on their side by posing those questions to the AI itself, right? We, we talk a lot about like what is ethical use of AI, what is explainable AI, you know, how do we actually interpret what AI is doing? 
you know, GPT-3 has, has frameworks that allow you to do that. But I think what's like really interesting is like taking a, I guess, a dispassionate in the most extreme sense of the word, a dispassionate kind of rendering of whether or not a particular action or activity or perspective is ethical or not, imposing that to GPT-3 as as kind of like, again, an unbiased point of view on, on what is and is not ethical based on what it's been trained on. So I think there are a lot of like very interesting, like bordering on philosophical applications for uh, technologies like this. But certainly, I think, you know, we can, we can all agree based on our experience, there's, there's a fair amount of work to do to refine uh, GPT-3 and, and work out the kinks. You both recently co-authored an article for Kineso, an IPG sister company, all about digital responsibility, AI, and data ethics. And I'd love to hear just a snapshot of what you both concluded as you dove into this space. So Peter and I contributed an article to the Kineso Viewpoints report that's all around digital responsibility and data ethics. And there are some some amazing contributions from folks at Kineso and also some clients as well, all sort of talking about the charge of digital responsibility and what that means and, and how to actually take the reins and be leaders in this space. And so the report that Peter and I contributed was all around the emerging technologies that can help to enable digital responsibility and think about transparency and data ethics in ways that may not have been possible without these technologies. Yeah, so Josh, I think, you know, just to build on that, the way we actually open up kind of our, our perspective in this report is actually indicating that there's a fair amount of data to support that companies that take data ethics seriously are actually more successful in market than companies that don't. Recently, data ethics and consumer privacy were added to um, ESG investment criteria, which is kind of an interesting like addition because historically those have looked at environmental and social measures of you know how a company is is impacting the world that we live in. They've now added consumer privacy to that list, which kind of indicates that they believe, or kind of implicit in the measurement itself, is that you know companies that take consumer privacy more seriously will be more successful in the future. And actually, the data supports that. So, to your point, Josh, you know as as we kind of like looked to flesh out the report, the the technologies that we wanted to focus on were really those technologies that that would enable and help companies improve kind of their consumer privacy scoring, if you will, within the ESG framework. Because again, we're in the business of helping our clients uh, succeed, and this is one way that they can do that. Some of these technologies, it's definitely early days. One of the, the technologies that we cite is the concept of personal data vaults, which is, I think, a really compelling concept and enables people to have more control over their data and the organizations that they're sharing it with. But it's very, very early days for those types of technologies. And we do cite others that are maybe a bit more actionable, like consent management platforms like OneTrust, for example. But we also look to the future in ways that we can continue to not just help our clients, but ultimately to make these experiences better for the consumers on the other end. Well, Josh and Peter, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. We'll certainly link out to your article on our website at rga.com so people can check that out for themselves. And of course, we would love to thank everybody out there who's been listening to our chat as well. We really appreciate your making time. So on behalf of the team here and myself, again, I'm Shirley Brady. We thank you so much and we look forward to catching you next time. Take care. 